Today, 50 years ago, 1972, Elton John released this song here. Rocket Man, the song was inspired by the short story The Rocket Man uh, by Ray Bradbury. And it goes to the theme of David Bowie's 1969 song, Space Odyssey. But the lyricist Bernie Taupin said, people identified, unfortunately, with David Bowie's Space Odyssey. It actually wasn't inspired by that at all. It was inspired by Ray Bradbury from his book of science fiction short stories called The Illustrated Man. And in that book, there was a story called Rocket Man, which was about how astronauts in the future would become sort of an everyday job. So I kind of took the idea and ran with that. Um, Shane... Whether or you, whether or not you're an Elton John fan, many aren't and many are. You just hear a song like this, fifty years on, it's just so fresh, isn't it? It is, you know, and I just, I just can't believe it's been fifty years because I, 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 you know, it's just sort of part of part of my upbringing. Yeah, the years goes by very quickly, particularly in the musical context. Doesn't it? Does it not, Heather Roy? Fifty yeah. years just swings by, yeah. doesn't it? It does, and um, also a fabulous film, wasn't it, Rocket Man? Of, it uh, was Elton John's life. Yeah. remarkable, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Mm. So there you go. Happy happy birthday, Rocket Man, the song 50 years ago, and uh, what a song uh, it is. Uh, just an update uh, by Assistant Commissioner Richard Chambers. More than 500 police staff have been involved in the operation. Of that, 40 were injured yesterday. Uh, it ranges from the injuries range from bumps, bruises, to bone fractures, head and chest injuries. Eight of those were admitted to hospital and have now been uh, discharged. And Assistant Commissioner Chambers wants to thank the Wellington Free Ambulance for their support yesterday. He says some officers received care and went back out to the front line yesterday. Uh, also, uh, a significant investigation phase has now begun. Footage has been collected and are gathering information from the public to hold people accountable for their criminal behaviour yesterday. Uh, and someone asked, uh, look, we didn't really get to the bottom of whether your two panellists actually wanted parliamentary grounds to be closed off or not. Uh, around the panel, before we get to our next subject, do you, would you prefer it to be walled or actually kept it as it is, Heather? Uh, kept as it is. I think that Parliament's an important place for the people and they should have access to it. Shane? I think we do need to up the security, but uh, and there's new technology. You can have bollards that you can lower and raise, oh, yes. but keep it as open as possible. All right. 24 to 5, the panel are NZ National. Oh, goodness, I have Barry Crump's signature on a piece of NZBC letterhead. When I was about 12 years old, my father was reading and enjoying the Crump books. I wrote to Keith Bracey of Town and Around, and he got me the signature, dated the 14th of December, 1966. Wow, that's very cool. Now, to this, world leaders agree to draw up an historic treaty on plastic waste. This is what The Guardian reported today. The UN Environment Assembly resolution is being hailed as the biggest climate deal since the 2015 Paris Accord. Now, we discussed the, plat- the Plastics Treaty, as is known, on the panel a few days back. It hasn't had a lot of attention in New Zealand, but it's pretty significant. Why? Because the plastic 
pollution crisis has been recognised as one of the triple threats to our planet alongside climate change and biodiversity loss. So now the international community has agreed to end plastic pollution and draft a legally binding treaty by 2024. So to discuss is Associate Professor Tresia Farrelly uh, from uh, Massey University's Political Ecology Research Centre, who's been very inc- closely involved in this issue. Uh, Tresia, welcome again to the panel. Kia ora, thank you. And an historic moment, you say? Yeah, it certainly is. This is um, a moment that's been building up for years. I think I've been working on this since uh, 2017. Um, I think if I had imagined we would be where we're at two years ago, I would have thought people were just crazy. Uh, we've just really? been such a long way. Oh, absolutely. We had The language was stuck on marine litter. Uh, we had no language around any negotiated text that looked towards a treaty that might focus on pre- uh, prevention, reduction, production of plastics, redesign, safe design of plastics. This is very exciting. So what is it? Is it about a, is it 170 plus nations? Am I right? Yep, that'd be about right, I'd say. Uh, yeah, 173 <laughs> nations, I think, uh, signed up to this uh, international plastics treaty deal. Uh, what does it mean for New Zealand? So what it means for us is along with all the other United Nations member states who have um, agreed to this and, and they, there's consensus around this, it's been passed. What it means is that it provides the scope of a mandate for, which is comprehensive and really ambitious, um, which allows us to negotiate an effective and comprehensive treaty. Uh, as you say, um, we're looking at an ambitious deadline of 2024. That's only two years' time. It's not very far away. But the mandate is for the um, Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, which is the committee that is being given the responsibility to develop this this treaty. So it's the first major leap in the right direction, um, but based on what we've seen at UNEA to date, there's been lots of negotiating texts and debates around what should be in there. So we're going to look forward to two years of some more hard-fought negotiations. Um, but what we really need to do is ensure that this final treaty covers the full life cycle of plastics, right, again, right from production, upholds human rights, protects human and ecosystem health, values local and traditional knowledge, innovations and practices, and it must be legally binding. Um, yeah. Plastic, 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 plastic. I mean, the fa- the the, uh, the 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 facts are just extraordinary, and I'll come to the panel very shortly. But uh, I was just reading, you know, um, nine point two billion tons of plastic produced since nineteen fifty to twenty seventeen. Yep. Seven billion tons of those waste. Well, yeah, we're looking at um, these numbers. The, the production to quadruple now from last statistics by 2050. Um, and there is a real connection with, clo- with climate change in the latest IPCC report because um, that will mean that by that stage, 10 to 13% um, of our global carbon budget will be on the production of plastic. So it's completely wrapped up, these, these triple threats. Um, and of course, um, plastic uh, pollution, as we know, threatens biodiversity. Well, let's go to Shane Tepo, who, uh, as this very moment, I can just hear yeah. him opening a bottle of plastic yogurt, plastic bottle, plastic top. You know, I mean, it's everyday life. It's all, it's uh, all, it's, it's all around us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, look, but, yeah, but look, just and the stats when you look at them are horrific. Like eight million, eight million per year goes into our seas. It takes four hundred 
years to um, to do to um, de- decompose. Four hundred years oh. for one plastic bottle to decompose. All right, the, the, I'm going to have to figures... stop you there because they don't decompose. There's a lot of messaging okay. around that. And that. Yeah, I'm going to have to stop you there because what what that yeah. does when we okay. read that, and I saw All that right. today in the BBC story. <laughs> It makes you think that they just go away, yeah. but they don't. They don't go away. So sorry. sorry no, no, no. Hang on, Trizia. <laughs> it must decompose okay. sometime. Right. That, no. that the, the plastic, the plastic yoga bottle that Shane Tepo is eating from right now. What's, <laughs> yeah. what's the life cycle of that? If yeah. it's in the, if it's in the sea, when does it decompose to nothing? Yeah. So, so the problem with plastics is they do break down into micro nano sized particles, and basically what happens is that they're also. Um, they're leaching out um, additives and toxicants at the same time, and many of those are those persistent organic pollutants, and they're the forever chemicals, so they don't go away, um, and they just keep getting incorporated into other ecosystems, into um, you know the, the bodies of fish and so forth, and kind of uh, bioaccumulates literally up the food chain. So there's kind of, yeah, they kind of break down. Yes, they do break down, absolutely. Um, they certainly don't biodegrade, um, and they kind of don't really go away. They just end up somewhere else and become more problematic. We, answered, we interrupted yeah, you, Shane, and, and, so let's keep coming in. Yeah, no, I, I just finished off by saying where there's a will, there's a way. Absolutely. And there wasn't that, and there wasn't, and there are much better alternatives, and it wasn't that long ago where almost everything, paint, et cetera, had lead in it. We know it was bad. We found yeah. better alternatives. We can do it for plastic. Oh, kia ora, Shane. Yeah. All right, yeah. Uh, Heather. Yeah, great step forward. I've just got two quick questions for Trisha. First one is we are talking about single-use plastics, aren't we, in this treaty? No, we're actually talking about more than that. We're talking about, um, well, it'll, it'll be see, uh, the, the answer to that is we'll see how that goes in the next couple of years when the detail of that and the mechanism sitting underneath each of the paragraphs of text of the resolution is, nego- is negotiated. So um, nice. it, it should be, mu- we were hoping it's much broader than that, so I can't say no, um, but it, it really okay. needs to be much broader. Uh, it's interesting yeah. because, um, i keep going here, please. So, and um, my second question is, we, we know that most of the ocean plastic is, pollution is coming from, you know, five countries was the last I read. Are those countries part of the 173 countries that have signed up to this treaty? Yes, yes it's been, this is where, where it's just so just astounding to me. I, again, if, uh, for example, if I was to, again, you know, somebody told me two years ago that the US were going, were going to agree to the text that I've, we've been seeing negotiated through the OECPR last week and, you know, 5.2 this week, I just wouldn't believe it. But there's been such a turnaround and I have to say that the the push has come largely from global civil society groups, largely under the umbrella of the Break Free from Plastic movement. They've been pushing together alongside with scientists, with tradi- people who are holders of traditional local knowledge um, in order to, to push delegates to a more ambitious treaty. And, and here we are. And in fact, it even includes language around local and traditional knowledge in here. So this is pretty significant news, so nice to have you on the programme to to put the word out there. But just finally, you know, it's been a big uh, thing in our household because um, a little four-year-old junior, suddenly he's, uh, from a book, he's fixated about um, plastic on the streets. And this morning, holding his hand, sunshine up for a a coffee and a little mousetrap, 
He says, Daddy, there's a little piece of plastic there. Pick it up now because the turtle will um, get hurt by it. Oh, so oh. Here, here, I, here I had to, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the blockhouse bay village, pick up on the, on the sidewalk um, a piece of plastic. Um, do, I have any, do I have any good news to tell little, the little four-year-old about uh, where we're going with plastics in the world? Yeah, you could tell him that now a million people have signed a petition all around the world. And these are not people who are like, you know, policymakers and people in government. These are just people like you and I have, um, have, have signed a petition in favour of this treaty. And it will make a significant difference, particularly if it's focused on reduction in production redesign. All right, good to have you on, Tresia Kiora. That is uh, Tresia Farrelly uh, from Massey University. A big, big, very significant uh, historic treaty. Plastic hasn't had a huge amount of attention here, but uh, it's um, it's um, a very significant resolution from the UN Environment Assembly. Fifteen to five, the panel are uh, NZ National. Well, there's nothing like a hot cup of coffee from your local to start the day, but. How much are you prepared to pay for that little bit of luxury? As the Otago Daily Times warns, prices are rising due to what suppliers are calling a perfect storm. They're saying get ready for a higher-priced cup of coffee. Jacob Parsons is the owner of West Auckland Coffee Company, Mount Eckerson Coffee, is with us now. Jacob, welcome to the panel. Thanks for having me. Um, firstly, you now where do you import your coffee from? Uh, we import our coffee from a community called Kanungu in West Uganda, East Africa. So tell us more about your business. You're not just a cafe, are you? No, no. So we, our goal as a business is to connect your cup of coffee with community transformation for the growers over in Kanungu. Um, and so we import that coffee directly from them. Um, we, blend, we, cut, we bring it here, we roast it and blend it with other origins from around the world and then supply cafes and at-home coffee drinkers. Very cool. The issue is, and uh, I'm speaking as a coffee lover, which I, I love my coffee, it's a real treat for me, um, you're saying that coffee has been far too cheap for far too long. Problem is, uh, Jacob, I don't want to pay any more for my coffee. I already pay enough. Yeah, well, the the thing is, it's a, it is it is the perfect storm like you mentioned before. Um, where, but like coffee, the international price of coffee is um, almost double what it was this time last year. Double? Um, it, yeah, yeah. So that's the international coffee price on the futures sea price in the, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and what that's really good for growers because that means that they can sell it for more. Um, but unfortunately, it's really tough for roasters here in um, here in New Zealand, and then who sell to cafes? Uh, Heather, your coffee fan. What are we invest- oh, let's go to let's go to uh, Shane first. So, sorry, oh, no, sorry, okay. sorry, Shane. Just a question, if you don't mind. Yeah. just a question. What do you envisage your price of coffee co- co- costing us over the next year or so? Because we, we we've seen it hit that benchmark of fifty cent, fifty five bucks, and then five fifty, and get, getting close to the six. I reckon it's mm. gone up a good twenty. Percent over the last year alone, eh? Definitely, yeah. And the interesting thing, well, I've actually had. When, to, when do you think it's going to hit? Well, yeah, it is really interesting because I've I've been thinking about that um, with staff being out with like isolating and stuff. I've been on the till this week um, and noticed that people are actually paying quite a bit for their coffees um, already. When you, when you add your alternative milks in, you add your shots, your extra shots, decaf. Um, we are 
most coffees being sold out of here like seven or eight dollars, but it's that base. Oh, no oh. way. Come on, Jacob. Seven or eight dollars for a latte. That's rubbish. Oh, a, 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 a tall, a tall ice latte. Yep, $8.20. Yeah. Paid that yesterday. What? Yep. You just don't yep. notice, eh, when you do that pay wave. You don't notice. Uh. It's the base price that, that um, is probably what needs to move and hasn't moved a lot in the last little while. Okay. Heather? Mm, well, I do have to preface my comments by saying I'm much more of a tea drinker. I'll have the odd coffee, but... Um, when I read the article, I did call, call me a cynic, but it sounded like a bit of a fluff piece for the industry to pre-justify putting prices up. And is that what we've just heard? I'm not sure. Jacob? Um, yeah, I, I, I think you've got a lot of things going on. With The, the, the buy price of coffee is going up, your freight's going up, um, and then we're, we're sort of stuck in a bit of a hard place as a roaster because we need to put our prices up um, as our business, but then we supply cafes who are really struggling at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's a, it is a bit of a tightrope for us as a company. Yeah. The, market, the market will determine the price that people are prepared to pay. The market, Jacob, will determine the price. This is from uh, former ACT MP, Jacob, uh, <laughs> uh, put it, putting the word in there. Can, what, can what, I, what, can I also Shane? Wallace, yeah. Wallace, uh, one cup of coffee a day, seven days a week, 2000 bucks a year. That's right. Do That's the right, math, Jacob. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, it all adds up. It sure does. Uh, but uh, you're saying that you want to pay your growers more, Jacob. So that's part of it as well. So you want to sort of feed that money through. Well, there's, there, there's been a lot of studies on, uh, like, with the price this time last year, that um, they, they're, they're barely making it, um, making any money on their crops. And so I'm, I'm all for the international price going up. We just out this side of the world need to work out how it. All lands, I guess, in terms of your daily coffee fix from your local cafe. Yeah, good to have you on there. A bit of response from this. Uh, Diane says, I just paid $6 for a coffee in Foxton. That's, that was a large single shot latte. By the way, Jacob, you don't have to be. Are you in a cafe between uh, Newland and Blockhouse Bay on that industrial road? We are, yeah. That's you? Went in there for the first time uh, two weeks ago and one of, the best, one of the best coffees I've had in Auckland. Yeah. Oh. Really oh, good coffee. Appreciate, appreciate yeah, good on you. Yeah, I thought, yeah. Well, what's this place? Uh, and it, I just clicked this you. Good on you, Jacob. That is um, uh, West Auckland Coffee Company, Mount Ankerson Coffee. And do try and find them. <laughs> a little bit of a plug there for uh, uh, business doing it hard. Uh, it's on that. Have you been there, Shane? It's on that industrial road yeah. between, yeah. yeah. I, I think so, yeah. I think so. You know what? Just final say on coffee. Yeah. Five bucks, five bucks of coffee. Five bucks is too much to pay for a bad cup of coffee. Yes. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot yes. of bad coffee out there, right? Absolutely, Shane. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I get really annoyed if I hand oh. over $5 and it's lukewarm, tepid, and not strong. Yep. Me too. I agree. Nine to five, the panel, RNZ National. Completely different topic here, but this really caught our eye. Where would you consider the birthplace of professional women's sport in Aotearoa? Well, the answer may surprise you. Southland, yep, as Stuff's Logan Savory reports, Southland set a precedent 24 years ago when a group called the Southern Team Company set up none other than... The Southern Sting, the legendary Southern Sting. And Lee Piper was one of those closely involved. He's with us now. Lee, welcome to the panel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Explain, what's the background to the Southern Sting? What was it? What is it? 
And what do they do differently? Yeah, well, I think um, as to the article you referred to there, it was really the, well, it actually, I think this year they're celebrating 25 years of professional female sport in regards to netball. And the lead up without being completely going into it was in 1997, they had a league called the Coca-Cola Cup which was predominantly a club-based competition, which then flowed into 1998, which was more of a regional competition. And so at that point, Southend had attained the services of Bernice Minnie and Donna Lofhagen in 97, and that then rolled into 98. And, and as that article um, alludes to over the next 10 years of what then ended up becoming the, um, I think they went from the ANZ, that became the ANZ Cup or the ANZ Premiership. Over the 10 years, the Sting won it uh, seven times and was yeah. runner-up three times. But really, it was the first introduction into, as that article alludes to, the paying of, of players. And the Sting really was the only ones that came out and said, we are paying them and we're paying them well. Uh, and so um, it sort of heralded uh, <laughs> the uh, ushered in uh, a new era, didn't it? Sort of professional, uh, well, actually, uh, you know, paying people, paying women in sport. Um, but people didn't like it. A lot of people didn't like it. Well, I think the real difference um, was that that literally every one of the teams competing originally, and there was 10, I think, in the opening round of 1998, were all really just, um, their local associations, so say the Otago Netball Association or Canterbury or Auckland. And so it was just very amateur, and the boards or the organisations were run by literally the same people running Saturday Netball. What the sting did was it peeled out um, Southern Team Co and said, OK, we'll, we'll run it as a professional organisation. And the people involved in that board had no real, including me, had no real background in netball. We just had other different skills. So we ran it, as you might for want of a better term, run a business. So how do we get commercial sponsorship? What does our event look oh. like? How do we get bums on seats? And how do we pay players? Our big advantage was it took a long time for the other franchises to um, catch up. Once they caught up, it became a bit more competitive. But we basically went out and said, we want to pay players um, and we want to get them from all over New Zealand. Not dissimilar to what a rugby model might look like now in Super Rugby. Amazing, isn't it? It's quite an quite extraordinary story, Heather Roy. It is, and a lot of good things have come out of Southland, but it does speak to the importance of good governance, which I spend uh, my professional life doing now, and you know, Lee's description of how that evolved um, is really impressive. But this story does seem to loop back to me, in my mind anyway, to the earlier one about gender pay equity, doesn't it? Why not invite all the codes and franchises to publish their male versus female pay rates and explain the difference? Lee? Yeah, I, I think, and again, the article alludes to it, it's still, in my view, um, even though we are 24 years down the track, um, I still I manage about a dozen ANZ Premiership netballers. I've got a, four or five silver ferns. At the bottom end of those ANZ Premiership players now, I would say the bottom third barely make a living. So when you yeah. have a look at it, you yeah. could say, well, okay, well, over a six-month period of the ANZ Premiership, you know, um, X amount of money might be not too bad, but they can't work for the other six because mm. the commitment is such. The problem is that the commercial dollars aren't pumped into the franchises enough to allow them to fund at a good level. The franchises aren't resourced enough, so they don't have big management staff, so the general manager or the CEO is trying to do 10 different jobs. So while we've made massive steps in female sport, really the money people aren't still putting the money where their mouth is. And if right. I was being completely honest, lip service is still being paid in, in regards to diversity around women. So 
there is this undertone of, God, you know, I need to be involved with women's sport because I need to tick a box. They've got to get over this tick boxing exercise and actually come out and say, okay, we need to support it. Now, you can also argue and say, oh, well, we cover women's sport. We, you know, we're good. We're covering it. You might cover it and, and tick that box and say, well, we're covering it. But there's a difference between covering it and promoting it. So when we look at someone like, say, Eliza McCartney as an example, and you say, well, there's a, a, a prominent female New Zealand athlete. If you look at what she's done post the Games in 2016, the answer's nothing. But she's extremely high profile, really well promoted. She's got a really good brand image. And so she fits a commercial model. So the, the, the trick here is to make sure that the female athletes across these sports are not only getting coverage, but they're being promoted so that they can become role models and become and, commercial athletes. And earn a living. All right, Shane, a uh, brief word from you. Oh, look, I, I tell you, one of the keys to it is that uh, some of these women's teams, that what they do is they operate and work out some of the smaller smaller cities, and, they, and they're really well supported. They're not sort of lost in the sort of the volume of it. Uh, but also, um, shout out to uh, the soccer fraternity. They have equity when it comes to how much that they pay their men and their women at a national level. Mm. Um, finally, uh, Lee, Southern Sting, um, you, the team, must be pretty, pretty proud of them, and indeed um, the whole uh, Southern region, pretty proud of the Southern Sting. Yeah, well, they okay. were. Um, they were until to 2007, obviously, when it, it moved into a franchise competition where Otago and Southland um, um, merged. But, yeah, look, it made a massive difference to Southland during those times because, you know, traditionally in Southland sport, the Stags had struggled you know, and 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 it had pretty much got a bad rap. But here was a, an organisation and a team that could not only compete on a national scale and what we would term would be a high-profile yeah. sport, but they were winning. All right, Lee, kia ora for that. Uh, and uh, a wonderful panel. Thank you both. Uh, Shane Tipo, Heather Roy, it's been uh, lovely uh, having you on uh, this afternoon. Appreciate it. Uh, Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next. Let's go out with a little bit of Rocket Man. Friday panel tomorrow. What does that mean? Power Ballad Friday. I think it's gonna be